Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. It is time once again for the Hooked on Movies podcast. Today, we are continuing the Lord of the Rings trilogy with the 2002 release, The Two Towers. As always, please welcome Ted. My precious. And Ken. With the bad habit, he knows. He's always watching. You guys are freaking me out. And our celebrity guest for the trilogy, Justin. Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. <laughs> and I am Eric. What we need is a few good taters. What we need taters. are a few what good reviews. That's right. Ken, give us a synopsis. Okay, the sequel to the Golden Globe nominated and FII award winning The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers follows the continuing quest of Frodo and the Fellowship to destroy the One Ring. Frodo and Sam discover they are being followed by a mysterious golem. Aragon and the elf archer Legolas and Gimme the Dwarf encountered the besieged Rohan Kingdom, whose once great King Thiaden has fallen under Sermon's deadly spell. All right, well, that was easy enough. Let's talk about the first time we saw this movie. For me, I have uh, no idea when I first saw this movie. It's a blur to me. How about you, Ken? Theater, for, you know, when it first came out, I think probably opening weekend. Wow, look at you. Justin, I'm assuming theater for you. Opening day. First in line. The day, first in line. <laughs> like, like, I mean, 9 a.m. showing. He was running the projector. And, uh, yeah, no. Dressed um, up as his definitely. favorite character. I, no, I can no, see it. I, I, I didn't do. I didn't do any of the cosplay or anything like that. But I was definitely there first day, first showing for this one. Nice, Ted. How about you? I saw it in the theater too. I don't exactly remember if it was opening weekend. It probably was. I know I saw this is the only one I saw in the movie twice in the movie theater twice. So I, cause right, I cool. ended up going back with a friend after I saw it the first time. I am obviously in the minority here with you guys. Uh, Ted, give us the particulars of this one. Okay, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, directed by Peter Jackson. is a screenplay by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, Stephen Sinclair, and Peter Jackson. It's based off of the novel The Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien. It has a running time of 170 minutes. It has a release date of December 18th, 2002. It had a budget of $94 million, and it had a box office gross of $947.9 million. Wow. Yeah, very lucrative. And Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers stars Elijah Wood again as Frodo Baggins, Ian McKellen reprising his role as Gandalf the White, Viggo Mortensen as Aragon, Sean Astin as Samwise Gamgee, Andy Serkis as Gollum or Smeagol, Billy Boyd as Paragon Took, Dominic Monaghan as Meridoc Brandybuck, John Reese Davies as Gimli. He also voiced Treebeard, Orlando Boom as Legolas, Bernard Hill as Theoden, 
Christopher Lee as Sauron the White, Hugo Weaving as Elrond, David Wenham as Faramir, Brad Dorif as Grima Wormtongue, Carl Urban as Aramir, Liv Tyler as Arwen, Kate Blanchett as Galadriel, and Sean Bean as Baromir. And Jerry Mathers as the as beaver. The beaver. Everybody is in this movie. Exactly. <laughs> Ted, what did uh, what did the critics think of this one as compared well, to the first this is, one? This is an amazing thing because the critic score is a certified fresh ninety five percent, and the audience score is a ninety five percent. Wow! Oh, wow! And as far as the the reviews go, I was only able to find one negative review. Is it um, from Eric? <laughs> yeah, it's from Eric. Yeah. It's from Sarah Sands. She's from the Daily Telegraph from the United Kingdom. She said, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, is like being trapped in a nerd's bedroom. Oh, I, my God. I guess, well, that's true. I, guess I don't know maybe, if that's considered a negative, though, right? I mean... I, I, I'm not sure if she's trying to tell us that she's kidnapped or what. Uh, maybe. On the positive side, Richard Roper from Ebert and Roper said, This film doesn't change my review of the original, but it does have me eagerly looking forward to the final installment. I liked it a lot. Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times, he said, It is not faithful to the spirit of Tolkien and misplaces much of the charm and whimsy of the books, but it stands on its own as a visionary thriller. Positive, so... We're breaking this one into uh, a three-part section here, as we do with all our movies now. So, we are going to have Justin tell us about uh, the first part of this movie. Which which works out, because I know how to pronounce everything. So it, well, it's, it's good. Wait, yeah. wait, what are you trying to say? I'm just trying to tell you there's an well, R in Aragorn. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't pronounce theater earlier. Don't, don't feel bad, Ken. I couldn't. I was reading through it going, better you than me. I'd rip this thing to shreds. Let the expert read this one, right? Exactly. Go for right, it. So, so the plot, part one. Um, awakening from a dream of Gandalf fighting the Balrog of Moria, Frodo Baggins finds himself along with Samwise Gamgee lost in the ML Mule near Morador. They discover that they are being tracked by Gollum, a former bearer of the One Ring. Capturing Gollum, Frodo takes pity and allows him to guide them, uh, reminding Sam that they will need Gollum's help to infiltrate Mordor. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli pursue a band of Uruk-hai to save their companions, Merry and Pippin, entering the kingdom of Rohan. The Uruk-hai are ambushed by the Rohirrim, allowing Merry and Pippin to escape into Fanghorn Forest. Meeting Aragorn's group, the Rohirrim's leader, Aramir, explains that he and his men have been exiled by Rohan's king, Theoden, who is under the control of Saruman and is the, and his servant, Grima Wormtongue. Aomar believes Merry and Pippin were killed during the raid, but leaves the group two horses. In Fanghorn, Aragorn's group encounters Gandalf, who, after his fight against the Balrog, was resurrected as Gandalf the White to help Middle-earth. Pretty exciting, listen, you read it. Almost more exciting than watching the movie. <laughs> nice. I was, All right. I was waiting for that. I know. Oh, Vigo's right. got his moments, right? You know. Yeah. So, yeah, we kick it off and kind of like that recap of when Gandalf uh, took his little fall off the ledge there and kind of what happened. Great way to start the movie out, because everyone want to know, is Gandalf dead or alive? I, I think he was in the trailer, so, you know. Yeah, <laughs> was he in the trailer? I wasn't could have sure. been his evil twin. 
Could have been no, J.R. Uh, Ewing. Who knows? Randolph. Yeah. <laughs> Randolph, right. It's, yeah, Randolph. It's, 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 Randolph. It's, it's Schmandolf. Schmandolf, Schmandolf. the Schmay. Randolph, we're back! <laughs> <laughs> and thus, our review of Trading Places. There we go. <laughs> I think it's interesting, though, the opening of Gondolf, you know, doing battle. I mean, it makes Gondolf basically a badass. He's going, he's attacking this thing all the way down to the core of the of the Earth. It's a great visual. It's the I, longest I, fall ever. It is a long it fall. It just keeps but... falling and falling yeah. and falling and falling. What do you falling. want to walk there? I mean, come on. Well, at some <laughs> point, you got to hit the ground or water or something. And at the speed he's going, he just turn into just a, an ink splot. Yeah, it's it's weird. They have kind of established that wizards are made of sterner stuff than humans but we don't really get anything specific on how tough they are like they can be killed from what we understand but it's like it's it's very difficult so he's the obvious choice to fight the balrog and all that so literally no one else would have a stand a chance i think it compared this to like the first movie where he's kind of like the elderly wizard you know and he's getting his ass kicked by christopher lee and now all of a sudden it's kind of like, you know, where did this guy come from? This guy who, yeah. you know, we haven't seen that up to this point. I mean, we, we've seen him in battle, but not this aggressive. So I think it's a nice change of pace into this movie to start the movie off. Well, my question is this, and maybe Justin can elaborate more because he's read the books. But is this who Gandalf really was? all along, and he was just playing down his powers so he could fit in with everybody else. It's one of those things where he was always very aloof. Like, he he would put things into motion and not really be the person that was doing them himself, so he would he would kind of set up the pieces and just stand back. And a lot of the reasons that he did that is because he wanted to avoid responsibility, and he didn't want to be kind of tied down. In, in the in the Hobbit movies, they allude to how he was like really infatuated with Galadriel and all that. Realistically, he was a scholar, and you know he liked the comforts of life and things like that. And so, smoking the pipe, exactly. Those, those were the things that he would do, and he would go after knowledge and all that rather than going after power, like um, uh, Saruman, who went mm-hmm. after the Palantir and wanted to be the greatest servant of uh, Sauron. So it's not that he was hiding this. It's that he needed to be reborn and, and become more serious about it. We see that gotcha. in the first movie with Saruman, you know, him going to see him because he is much stronger and wiser. And he was kind of like his protege. I mean, because he didn't really take this seriously until he found out more about what the ring really was. I think this is just him rising to the, to the occasion. Now, I, did, I haven't watched, like, the Hobbit movies or read read The Hobbit. Now, I did watch The Hobbit cartoon when I was a very little kid, but I don't remember much about it. So I don't know if his character was more aggressive back there or if he was more of a loof. Oh, in the cartoon, he was absolutely a badass. I mean, he showed up and killed the King of the Goblins with his sword, you know, and that was pretty cool. So he, he has a famous elven sword called uh, Glamdring the Foe Hammer later on like when when um we're into some of these battles with with gandalf like just how he is like he's not afraid to get out there with his sword and start kicking ass yeah that, that kind of answers my question where i do disagree a little bit with tennis like he does fight the balrog and he's not gandalf the white at that point reserve and i think he plays down 
his knowledge of the ring, that he doesn't terrify Frodo. I don't know. It seems like he knows the future sometimes and that he has like visions of the future. And I think that he knows that if he scares Frodo, Frodo won't follow through with the with the journey. But he doesn't know about the ring. So he, he says that in the first movie, you know, Fellowship of the Ring. He doesn't he, know that's the ring to rule them all. In fact, he has to test Frodo to throw in the fire and and to see if there's any markings after on it. He doesn't know about the ring. Yeah, they, they do that in the book, too, where it's like, you're like, does Gandalf know? And they're like, oh, he doesn't know. It's like, wow, it's it seems like he knows, but he's just kind of like there. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Like, what What is he doing? He probably knows of the ring, but he doesn't mm-hmm. think that's the ring. Well, nobody suspects at this point that uh, Sauron is back. Except for Aragorn's kingdom. They're fighting uh, Mordor and orcs and all that. They don't They don't yeah. know that the Dark Lord has been uh, reborn once again and all that. So for like the third time. You know? Right, right. What a bad penny he is. It's like yeah. Jason or Michael Myers or something like that. Just oh, keeps yeah. him coming back. Yeah, if Jason was a giant flaming eye, that's <laughs> that'd be interesting. Frodo's like kind of dreaming this, but it actually is happening. And then Frodo wakes up, and him and Sam are on their way, and they're just lost. You know, I was reading somewhere. Even though you you're looking straight ahead and you see, you know, where you need to go, it's like being in a forest. Even if you think you're going straight, you're kind of walking in circles. Not uncommon from them to easily get lost because they complain about that they've been in the same place, you know, over and over again. So, mm-hmm. I, and I love our introduction to Smeagol. He's got two, what, two different names, right? It's it's kind of like there's two personalities. There's mm-hmm. Smeagol and Gollum. And we'll see that later when Gollum's in the reflecting pool, like looking and speaking and Smeagol's going back and they're having a conversation. And ultimately, I think that's it's one of the coolest acting scenes that you'll see in this is. So you know, he's, um, he's schizophrenic with himself. In, in Multiple a sense, personalities. Yeah. yeah. I would. Yeah. yeah. Essentially, the, the ring made him, caused him to go insane and split his personality. And I think the closer they are to the ring um, brings one more dominant than the other because he's been away from the ring for so long. It's closer to his original personality. You know, so and, that's and there's why power to it, too. When Frodo holds the ring, not even only when he puts it on, you know, he has that sort of cult of personality about him that just absolutely overwrites the thinking on um, on Gollum. And he calls him by his name Smeagol and he's like, it's one of those those strange moments where he's like, yes, that, that was our name way back. He calls him master afterwards because he's the one who holds the ring. So he's going to do anything that he can be, to be close to the ring. Was this the movie that Andy Serkis was nominated for? An, wasn't an Academy Award? It's either this or the next one. I think it. I thought it was this one because there's, there's some really good scenes in it. Yeah. So I, I think it is. For somebody who's doing motion capture work, which that's difficult in of its own to try to be able to capture the emotions that go into acting. Andy Serkis does an amazing job here as Gollum slash Smeagol. His performance is one of the highlights of the movie. Smeagol slash Gollum's journey is one of the more interesting aspects of the of this story. You got to give credit to the CGI here because the CGI is really awesome here because you got the facial expressions. I mean, we've seen other movies with CGI characters like, well, we can go to Harry Potter movies with their CGI characters, but this one, the facial 
reactions are just spot on. And I think along with you know, the actor's voice, you know, you combine those two together and let's be honest, an Oscar worthy performance here. Yeah. And it holds up really well in 4k and on the 4k TVs too. It really does. It's, it's almost flawless. It really is. About that scene with the Nazgul who's uh, flying on that, uh, like the, the dragon sort of creature, like over yeah. the, the marsh. The other scene is when uh, Frodo goes underneath and he sees the ghost. That was crazy. Like those effects. Yeah. I'm like, this is frightening. Like yeah. I, I can imagine watching this like with a kid and being like, wow, there's some actual fright and jump scares in this. Yeah. And the, the dragons that, that they ride, those had to be the prototypes that they used for game of Thrones later oh, on maybe. in the, de- in the yeah. decade. I mean, cause for a TV show, those were pretty flawless as well. Um, yeah. I'm surprised it only cost $94 million to make the movie. <laughs> uh, because the the CGI is it's something that could be made today. You look at this and you compare it to like Attack of the Clones, and oh, you look well, at yeah, no, that's, and see how uh, bad that has aged, aged over the years. And Man, this, that is some of the worst CGI in that movie. It's oh, it's, it's pretty brutal. It's really it bad. is. Watch Resident Evil, the the first Resident Evil movie. It's literally like like uh, looking at someone who's it Fred Astaire dancing with uh, Jerry mm-hmm. from Tom and Jerry. It's like literally looking at that. Like, yeah, Ooh. yeah, hey, that's pretty. That's pretty good. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I'm just saying you can tell one's <laughs> animation. You can tell one's right. a real person. And, and yes, for the record, that is and I, that's what anchors away. That was yeah. way better than Resident Evil. Yeah. Back to Andy Circus, really quick. When he was doing his lines for this movie, he was actually going back and forth. It wasn't like he read one line and then recorded the other lines separately. He actually did this back and forth, like having multiple personalities. I think that takes a lot of talent in order to perform that. I mean, even though you're a voice actor and you could just you know try it over and over again, to switch back and forth from one personality to another personality and do that straight through, that, that's amazing. He said he came up with the voice by hearing his cat cough up a furball. <laughs> he might be one of the more underappreciated actors. He's getting his, his due. I mean, he just yeah. directed Venom 2, uh, Let There Be Carnage. I don't think he's doing the third one, but I mean, he's had a fair amount of stuff. I don't know if that should be mentioned, Venom 2. I well, look at it this way. So after after this movie, he was Kong in, in uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong. Mm-hmm. He did 13 going on 30 with the uh, the lovely Judy Greer. And I, I suppose Jennifer Garner, too. Past that, like, what was he What was he really doing until he hits things like, uh, I think, the prestige. He played Nikolai Tesla's second-in-command guy. He really wasn't doing stuff. And then it's like, all right, he's doing all this mocap stuff. Then he finally gets like these really big opportunities, and and for him being a director, you know that that comes directly from him playing Ulysses Claw in Black Panther. He was really good in that as well. Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, of plays, course, yeah. How could I forget the Caesar. Planet? Literally plays the main character in all of those movies, doing right, motion right. capture. Yeah, and he's Snoke in The Force Awakens. Which is uh, better CGI than Attack of the Clones, but um, yeah, I don't know how you feel about Snoke. They sold him out at the end, but that's for another and, and podcast. Of course, of course, it's got the Marvel movies going too. So yeah, and I, then he I plays Alfred in, in the Batman, the most yeah. late, uh, recent uh, the Batman. Yeah, yeah, I think he's the one right now who has from this benefited the most. 
you, you can look at all of them. You don't really see Liv Tyler anymore. Viggo Mortensen's semi-retired. You know, no Hugo Weaving, and maybe Carl Urban is the only other one who's uh, enjoying yeah. a nice renaissance yeah, right I, now. Yeah, I didn't but... even know that was Carl Urban. Urban yeah, Mattel. young Carl I was Urban. watching it this time around. And, and I mean, you, you've seen a lot of these other people in various things. Uh, Miranda Otto, uh, who plays Eowyn, she was in um, that uh, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Never seen it. Yeah, it's a Netflix it, thing. So, yeah. Um, Grime Warm took me to talk about Brad Dorif. So, yeah, the voice of Chucky himself. Yeah, in Mississippi Burning and yep. um, Dune. Zombies Halloween. He was uh, the doctor in um, Frank Herbert's Dune from 1986, mm-hmm. the David Lynch one. Something about that particular character here, Wormtongue, did they intentionally try to make him look like Glenn Danzig? No, but that's an interesting thing because he definitely looks like him. he looks exactly like glenn danzig yeah like it's a lot like <laughs> freaky it's like i can't separate the two it's like i'm like looking at glenn danzig he he has this interesting thing to him too like when you see him there's definitely this appeal where it's like he's both attractive and repulsive at the same time because you see him and he's got like these stark features with like the piercing eyes and all that. There's a scene that he has in, in the next section with Eowyn where she's looking at him and I feel like she's actually buying what he's saying. You know, and I'm like, they did a really good job with this character because it mm-hmm. could have been a small throwaway role, but they, they got Brad Dorif, you know, and yeah. after this, he goes on to do Deadwood. And I love Deadwood. I don't know about you guys, but yeah, that Deadwood's was a awesome. Show. I like it when my wood is alive, to be honest with you. So. <laughs> he likes live wood. Okay. He likes he likes uh, fang horn. I don't like it when my wood is dead, so. <laughs> Good old tree beard. <laughs> oh, it's a family show. Come on. It's a family hey, it's it a was, family show and it was and just an innuendo. He, it, out anyway, so. it was an it was an innuendo. He was talking about trees, wasn't he? Trees, he wasn't. yeah. Yeah. Talking trees. trees. We got a great paper. segue. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys want me to move on to the next section or no, anything else? Because we, we still need to talk about all the way up to Gandalf becomes Gandalf the White. Um, he just kind of shows up, though. He does kind of show up. I, but I think it's interesting how they try to misplay it with Christopher Lee's voice uh, along with it. Yeah. They kind of mislead us thinking that it's the bad white wizard, not the good white wizard. They're both white wizards. It's almost like an evolutionary thing, right? So it's like they start off because there's brown, there's blue. You know, it's it's like 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 karate. You get like a a yellow black belt and get a brown belt. Your brown brown wizard would be Radagast, who is, uh, you know, kind of a nature wizard and all that. The blue ones, uh, I think they were like more espionage or something. They're really in the the tales of Numenor and um, the Silmalarian, so not at all relevant for this but your white wizard is the most powerful of the bunch they they have the most power and usually the head of the order is one there's only five wizards in this entire world they're not easy to come by interesting the first one we left off with mary and pippin being kidnapped i like these two characters in the, in this movie more than the other two movies and we'll talk about Return of the King on our next episode. I kind of like the serious tone that they're in because in the first movie they're they're pranksters, right? And even to a certain extent, thieves they're just mischievous and they're like little babies who can't keep their hands off of things, right? <laughs> they they always have to touch something when they shouldn't touch it. But then this they're, movie, they're basically they're, three-year-olds, Ken is saying. 
Well, basically, in a way, but in this movie, they're they're really not because at first they're captured, so they're they're really worried about getting away. They just have a more serious tone, and we'll we could talk about that later when they walk with the trees. How evolved their characters become in this movie. I do like these two characters a little bit more here than in, let's say in the first movie, because um, the first movie I just think they're kind of they're just annoying to me, whereas here they serve a purpose. They're growing up a little. They have a, a major part of the story here. They are who Aragon, Legolas, and Gimli are, are searching for. They also advance the attack on Sauron, because they kind of play the tree to take them by where Sauron lives in the tower. They have a purpose here, whereas in the first movie, they don't really have a purpose except for being kidnapped at the end. You Maybe know, comic relief movie. here and there. When you have something coming in a book, you know, and it's like, oh, this this will be there. So it's like they clearly right. have to be here walking through the snow and, you know, hiding from the birds and going into Moria. And so their part hasn't come, you know, like it, it takes right. a while for Gimli and Legolas to really do anything in the story. And then they become like, oh, I love the dynamic with these guys. You know, it's just you got to you got to get there. I'm surprised <laughs> they even get there because Gimli can't even keep up with them. He's out of breath and he's out of shape. I don't know how they get anywhere with him. You yeah, know, well, he's, he's a short. natural sprinter. <laughs> I will say one of my favorite parts is uh, Rohan's king. Um, he's under the spell. He's gross. You know, when you see he's him in gross. those effects, you're like, ugh. But uh, I love the transformation, though, of his face when he, he, when they bring him out of it. That slow into, you know, becoming a human man again. For even now, it's an, a nice, seamless process. It's really really well done how i don't know how he did it 20 something years ago because a lot of a lot of movies back then were not getting that right did Uh, you guys notice that uh he was the uh captain from titanic yes think of that but now that you mentioned it yeah i mean that's that's what i knew him from and and i think i've seen him in something else where he played someone's father but um i I was like oh that's that's theoden he plays a pretty good king oh yeah pretty solid king that's kind of unsure about certain things, but know that his men look up to him for courage and things of that nature. So you have Aragorn and the king, and you know you have the guy who should, who would be king, right? Yeah. And you have the guy who is king, and they they have different ideas of what you know how to lead, but they're both right and both wrong. He has I think a connection that, to the people that Aragorn, as a ranger, wouldn't have. So this is an important piece in the character journey for Aragorn because he's going to see what it takes to be a truly heroic king. That's what I like about that. It's almost kind of like he's he's learning, but they're mm-hmm. both learning from each other. Of course, and he knows exact. Everybody knows who Aragorn is at this point, but he he knows who he is. I think I was uh, reading somewhere that I guess. In the extended version, maybe, that he's, what, 87 years old? Yeah, he's, he's way yes. older than we think. He's from a lineage that has extended life. Well, and that's he's really good for his age. He's supposedly yep. the last of his kind. The well, last then, of his then he has a kid with an elf, you know, and, and elves live thousands of years. So. Yeah. So he's a ranger, originally, that we learned in the first movie. But you have a lot of other rangers in this movie. What's the difference between him being a ranger and the, and the other rangers that we see in the, in this movie here? Who are when, you when saying you, are the you, other rangers? You get a little bit further down. So rangers are basically, they go throughout the wilderness and, and they'll hunt and, and they'll, they'll do things like that. When we get to kind of Faramir, 
you know, who's Boromir's brother, he becomes a ranger, and it's like a patrol. They do things, and, like, they'll hide in trees and use arrows and stuff, and, like, do things secretly instead of attacking straight on like a knight would. It's more about, like, the style. They're more at one with the environment and nature than, you know, the dwarves that would just, like, run at you with hammers and axes. So one is, so. wants to be that, and the other one it was kind of exiled into that. Is that a good way of putting it? He is not keen on his lineage and he's really worried that you know he's going to repeat the mistake that his uh, ancestor Isildur did that's really kind of the thing about him there's a, a scene in the first movie where like he looks at the ring and all that and it's like he doesn't want any part of it and that ring will corrupt you it'll corrupt anybody so it's those small tests that he passed but Boromir did not pass that's kind of going back to the story there since he passed that, you know, he's going to try to do whatever he can to support Frodo. That's what gets us to this point, because the only way he can really support anybody at this point is by saving Merry and Pippin. Which he believes they get killed. Like, what I think about Aragorn, how the hobbits escaped. Yeah, right? yeah, and that's, and that's what a ranger would do, is they would be able to uh, see tracks and, like, signs of animals and things like that. And that's just what he does. You know, he's, he's a tracker by trade. You know, he's he's someone that spends long amount of time alone in the wilderness, so he would be able to find those things. And that's and that's all part of uh, what he's done. That's uh, his life as Strider, where where he's called uh, instead of being Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir to the you know throne of Minas Tirith. When that's a thinks... lot, Eric, isn't it? <laughs> and my head's there. about to explode. I know. <laughs> I was just thinking that when he thinks they're getting killed, he kicks. Um something he actually hurts his foot and actually that yeah, scream I was, I was thinking that he broke his foot there yeah. yeah that scream was him being in pain not from being upset with the fact that they were dead i don't know if it was like what he exactly kicked was it a rock it was a or helmet. A helmet yeah but i guess it seriously injured him there was a lot of injuries in this movie bruises and breaks and separations and things of that nature in the um, uh extended edition you could see uh uh, Sean Aston runs into a pond and comes out with like a cut foot because he stepped on like a broken piece of glass in the pond. Oh, wow. So there's that. And I was telling you before about um, Gimli, John Reese davies He cut off the tip of his finger trying to get an engine started on a, a truck that was... Uh, so they go do it, and he lost like the tip of his middle finger. Davies is a weird character. I mean, I, I think about him, and I think about the fact that the main characters in this movie all got tattoos. But he didn't. He went ahead and sent his stunt double to get the <laughs> tattoo instead. No, that's Spaceballs. <laughs> that's that's messed up. That's you messed idiot. Up. You didn't tattoo them. You tattooed their stunt doubles. <laughs> <laughs> so go, go ahead, uh, Justin. Why don't you go ahead and read part two of The Two Towers. Gandalf leads the trio to Rohan's capital, Adoras, where Gandalf frees Theoden from Sauron's control. Aragorn stops Theoden from executing Wormtongue, who flees. Learning of Saruman's plan to destroy Rohan with his Urukai army, Theoden evacuates his citizens to the fortress of Hornburg at Helm's Deep. Gandalf departs to find Eomer and his followers, hoping they will fight for their restored king. Aragorn befriends Theoden's niece, Eowyn, who becomes infatuated with him. When the refugees traveling to Helm's Deep are attacked by Saruman's warg-riding orcs, Aragorn falls from a cliff and is presumed dead. He is found by Theodred's horse, Brago, 
and uh, rides him to Helm's Deep, witnessing Saruman's army marching towards the fortress. I feel like the horse part is like such a moot point. Okay, you know, but it's like, all right, if that's important. In Rivendell, Arwen is told by her father, Elrond, that Aragorn will not return. He reminds her that if she remains in Middle-earth, she will outlive Aragorn by thousands of years, and she reluctantly departs for Valinor. Elrond is contacted by Galadriel of Lothlorien, who convinces him that the elves should honor their allegiance with men, and that they should dispatch a company of elves to Helm's Deep. In Fangorn Forest, Merry and Pippin meet Treebeard and Ent, who's a walking tree herder, basically, convincing Treebeard that they are allies, and they are brought to the Ent Council, where the Ents decide not to take part in the coming war. Pippin asks Treebeard to take them in the direction of Isengard, where they witness the deforestation caused by Saruman's war effort. Enraged, Treebeard and the Ents storm Isengard, trapping Saruman in his tower. This is why I had you read the plot, because there's a lot of hard names, things here to say. There's some intense parts in, in this second part here. You're you're getting to kind of like the uh, near climax and everything. and But just, just starting out, going back to the part that you were talking about with the special effects with Gandalf and Theoden, where they kind of take him back. You know, Theoden's in this haze because he doesn't really know what's going on. We find out that it's a spell. You know, you're you're introduced to my favorite character in this, which would be Eowyn. Miranda Oto, she's amazing. I love what she did and, and just how she played this character. And and I've seen her in a lot of other things, but this is just like one of my favorite roles for her. It's She's an interesting character. It's actually too bad, you know, in a movie that with the extended version is almost four hours long, that they couldn't find more time for her. Is she more prominent in the book, Justin? Oh, definitely, is... yeah. She has her moment in the next one a lot more than in this, but there's there's build-up stuff and there's character work, and I mean, her brother is, is Aomer, so they're prominent characters. She's she's essentially the princess of, of this nation, and, you know, you're, you're willing to believe it's like, oh, there's a human for Aragorn, and they kind of lead you in that direction, but um, it just ain't happening. <laughs> You know, and the movie's trying to flim flam you here because they're like, oh, oh, Arwen is going to go away because she's going to outlive him by thousands of years. And even though she's in love with him and it's like, OK, they're trying to pull one over on you, you know, and by introducing the only other woman in, in the movie, pretty much. You know, I like so th- her interaction with Wormtongue. Oh, yeah. Um, that, where yeah. He's trying to manipulate her as well to kind of almost put her under a spell in a, in a sense. Because what he's interested in is her. He's he, that's what he's in it for. He's not in it for the destruction of man. He's in it to get the girl. Mm-hmm. So I, I like their interaction. The reason why I like um, Wormtongue is also because when we do see him later, when he does get kicked out and he sees this army, he doesn't realize what he got himself into. <laughs> yeah. He has that look like, oh, this is what it was about. We're going to get rid of men. That's not what he thinks he signed up for. Even though it's a very small part, I think it's done very well. I really enjoy his um, his character a lot. How gross do you feel watching that scene with him and her? You know, it's, oh, it's, it's creepy. creepy. Yeah. It's yeah. so gross, and I'm like, yeah. oh. And, and I mean, Brad Dorif is just so good at like doing that. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen him in other stuff, it's like he really plays that part so uncomfortably. And you're just like, oh, he went there. Ew. <laughs> No, he's he's a very good actor in that he's got way. Got this unctuous look to him, and ugh, so like oily. So Aragorn and her don't fall in love. 
Because it uh, seems that's... like at the end of the movie that they're... Uh, no. Just remember, there's one more movie, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's been a long time since and I've seen that particular movie. His girlfriend is the third build actress on this entire credit reel, so it's like, oh, Liv yeah. Tyler. Yeah, so... Yeah, his heart belongs he really to thinks her. he's just going to do that and go away? I feel bad for her that he doesn't have the same interest in her as she does for him. You know, because you could see that she's smitten. And then when she thinks that he's been killed, her heart drops. So you kind of wish that she would find love. In the next movie, it almost feels like she's going to get on with one of the hobbits. But, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, here's, it, your con- here's your consolation prize. You get a hobbit. It, it's interesting, too, because she goes from being one of those tropes where it's like, oh, she's here to be a romantic trophy for somebody to being like one of the most badass characters in this series. And she kind of has glimmers of that here when you see her like practicing with the sword and all that. She doesn't want to lead the the people away. She wants to fight with the men. Of course. And that's why when you look at this, you look at like this culture, you can see that a lot of the work and the detail they put into it. It's like, all right, Tolkien wrote these characters just like, like we talk about with Star Trek sometimes, Ken. He wrote these characters as if they were different nationalities in Europe. So these would be your, your Vikings, you know? So yeah, um, they're definitely Vikings. You can tell by the Mead Hall, Rohan's, you know, the, yeah, everything. It, modern day parlance. If you've played Assassin's Creed Valhalla, you know all about the Norse and how they set up their villages and everything like that. So it's, that's like almost one for one that they're Vikings. I like that. You got some more cool effects with Treebeard and, and with the wargs and all that. I do think that it falls a little flat when you see Merry and Pippin walking, right? And Treebeard is like holding them. I think that's yeah. kind of a weak part. The CGI so, doesn't hold up as much. It looks a little off now when you watch like it. They, they really put it on Gollum and all that. And you're like, oh, this looks really good. And then and then it's like this one. It's like, okay, like you, you maybe it's kind of 10 million shitty. budget. We'll spend 9,900,000 on Gollum and then the rest goes to the tree. Yeah, it's like they spent all their character building points on Gollum, so they just had to, you know, come back and, you know, they're like, ah, we'll we'll just give him five. That'll be what? good enough. The tree bear wasn't wasn't he voiced by by Jonathan Rhys Davies? That's uh, right, Pauly Shore. Pauly Shore yeah. was the no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I think it's cool that there's a lot of people doing double things in this movie. So it, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the first time that we'll probably hear about those type of things. You were talking about the romance with Arwen. And of course, you have her father, um, Elrond. I don't know. It just this is one of the parts of the movie where I, I don't I don't give a shit, you know, about this kind of father doesn't approve of the man that she loves. Basically, wants him to go away. I mean, so what if she takes a number of years to hang out with a mortal man? I mean, if she can live forever or live for a very long time, isn't this the very short span of time for her? And then when he's gone, couldn't she then go back and rejoin the elves? It's a class thing. You know, if you think about like the royal and ruling class and all that, there's an elitism to it where he feels that he is below him. So, or, or below her, I should say. So he's the, the king of the, uh, of the elves there. And he's got his daughter, who's the princess. And she's absolutely in love with this man who... The only thing that Elrond sees when he looks at him is the weakness in man because of his great-great-grandsire who, at his moment of weakness, instead of throwing away the ring and saving the world, decided to keep it for himself. So 
Aragorn will never be good enough for uh, Arwen in Elrond's eyes. Until the end. Does the romance part of this movie, does that take away from everything else? Or does it just make it just a longer movie? Well, I mean, it definitely exists in the book, but I, I mean, I guess that's more of a question for you guys. Like, what do you think about it in, in terms of this? Because I look at this from, like, how does it relate to the book? Like, is it fun to watch? Because there's many different ways that I can dissect this as, like, the super fan that I am. But what what do you think from, like, an objective point of view, guys? I think she's necessary for the advancement of Aragorn's character. She has to be there because she saves him more on more than one occasion. I, I don't think it's just unnecessary to make things longer. I think that it it helps advance the character arc of the of essentially the main character. Are we talking about Liv Tyler's character? Yes. Eye candy. Move on. <laughs> She's Liv Tyler. That's all we got to say. One of only I... two females in the whole movie. Move on. I mean, I mean, pretty much. It is kind of it's like Star Wars fest. in that aspect. So. Yeah, it's they have Galadriel too, but she's not really in this one. You, you know, <laughs> there's really only two ladies. I just don't feel like I had that same connection to her as I did in the first film. I just felt like her character was a, a stronger character in the first film. And then we kind of fall in this love, tri- I almost going to say love triangle, because you got two girls that are basically in love with him. That's accurate. But daddy, I love him, you know, kind of deal. And it, it just slightly takes away from the movie a little bit. So that is a perennial theme that is seen across literature. And I mean, like, like think about Lo- Romeo and Juliet, you know, like you, you can go back to probably cave paintings and there's, there's probably that same story that's going on. Father disapproves of daughter's boyfriend drama ensues, but here's the thing. She has to give up her immortality if she wants to stay. And that was the whole thing that she said uh, when she gave him the necklace, that she would do that. There's apparently a way for her to do that, like to just become mortal. I'm curious on how that would work, how that works with losing her immortality. I know they have to leave. I know the elves are, are leaving, but they have been on Earth for a very, very long time. So why would all of a sudden would she lose her mortality? I believe um, she has to give it up freely. Something along those lines. So it's it's like a, a, a personal choice or something along those lines. And I think it's also tied to the even star, which is uh, the uh, necklace that she had given him. Okay. Yeah, that's doesn't, what I had thought, too. Doesn't answer my question, though, why she loses it. Well, she, I, she hasn't lost anything yet. We're just seeing her getting pulled, and it's like, okay, is she going to be true to her heart? Is she going to be true to the one that she loves? Or is she going to listen to her father and take off at the Grey Havens? So that's that's what we want to see. Because right now, what the movie is trying to do is push you towards, but no, Aragorn should be with Eowyn. Right? The movie's pushing you towards that. And it's like, oh, well, well, he should just be with her anyway, because Arwen is just going away anyway. This would just solve that problem completely. Well, it's like, yeah, but the heart wants what the heart wants. And that's really where we're stuck between this uh, love triangle, as you're putting it there. So they they get ambushed. Aragorn, he gets thrown off the cliff, right? Now, the horse, when we read the plot, when that plot was read from Wikipedia, it said it was the king's horse. But so, it's the um, king's son who died. Yeah, his son had just died, and, and uh, he was kind of in that fog, so he didn't even realize it. And then there's this wonderful scene about how he's talking about how this, I, I'll call them Edelweiss, you know, 
<laughs> the uh, the white flowers and they they grow on the uh, graves of of uh, kings and such and he's like oh look my son this grows just as on um, the graves of my forebears but his his horse is still around so it's another part where we see something that recognizes you know the prince's horse recognizes the the regal stature of Aragorn he's really coming along so it's just kind of another plot device to say hey Guess what? Return of the King? This is the guy, you know? He also sets the horse free. When they're leaving for Helm's Deep, the stable person is being mean to the horse because the horse doesn't want to leave, and Aragorn saves the horse and, and sets him free. So that's how that all connects there. Fun fact about that horse, uh, Vigo actually bought the horse. He le- he liked it so much that he went to the owners and actually purchased the horse from them based on, on how the horse reacted to, to him during the movie. And, and then you got to take that home from, you know, New Zealand and all that. So. Yeah. <laughs> what the shipping cost for that is. Plus there's like a, you got to wait like six months for like an embargo or something like that through quarantine to bring it into the country. I wonder if, if the owners were there in New Zealand, or if this is a horse that was already leased, already shipped in, put from... it in one of those fake two-person horse costumes, and they're like, "No, that's just two guys." Yeah, to... he gets home and he knows he's got two guys running around his house. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it works in the movies. I know to set up the the drama of the end of the movie that they have to go to Helm's Deep, but Gandalf is trying to convince Theoden not to go to Helm's Deep. And, and he's wrong. I, I understand because, I mean, ultimately Theoden's man, and he's making a human decision, essentially, because he's concerned about his people. Helm's Deep has protected them before. It's It's interesting that he doesn't take Gandalf's advice, and when everybody else in the movies kind of listens to Gandalf and takes what he says to heart, he kind of goes rogue and puts everybody at risk. I, I just think that's an interesting decision. Like I said, it sets up one of the coolest battle sequences no, definitely. ever put on film. Yeah, because the know, king doesn't even just... ask for help. They they say, why don't you set out writers to, to get help? And he's like, nah, they won't help us anyway. He's very stubborn. He believes that his you know fortress is in penetrated. I can't even say the word. So penetrable, which might have been one of the reasons why he was able to be so manipulated to begin with and not put under a spell. Sure. Yeah, that's a good that's a really good point. You know, but did was, you hear the first thing that he says to Gandalf after Grima talks to him? He goes, oh, look, it's Gandalf Stormcrow. It's, it's the guy who always shows up with bad news. As we see, Gandalf is wrong a lot. You know, and it's it's one of those things where just as many times as he's right, you know, he could be wrong about something. And the, the fact that Theoden had to choose what to do as a king, nobody else here has that perspective. That's like what we were talking about with Ted earlier. It's like Aragorn's learning that perspective. You know, I don't just do this because I want to fight. You know, I know you want to go and fight, but I've got women and children to think about. I've got the line of people, you know, that dates way back to thousands of years to protect. And I know tried and true we can do it here because we don't have the numbers because you know we pissed off my nephew and um you know he's got three thousand riders out somewhere 300 miles away by now he's weighing his options and it's the most pragmatic solution that he he can have is to wait everybody out 
until they can hopefully survive. He's just a very prideful man. He could have probably got, you know, his son and and those people to to come. Yeah. They said there's 300 leagues away. How are they going to get him? They didn't have a way to reach them, and, and that's why Gandalf takes off. And it's right. he's like, oh, look for me on the the sunlight of the fir- of the fifth day. You know, which is is weird, and it goes back to what you guys were saying about how he can kind of tell the future. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. but it's like, is that real? We don't know. But but that's the whole thing too, Ken. It's like, what would you do if you had to protect all these people, and you know that if you stay where you are right now, you're done because they can attack you with their numbers, and they're going to overwhelm you. So what do you do to try to you know mitigate that? If you go here, you've got a chance. But if you stay right. and you fight, you got nothing. You can't reach the cavalry that you had, which would have been the only strong defense. No, and I agree with his decision. However, I don't agree with him not listening to others to get other voices, other opinions to think the solution out. He has only one choice in his head, and that's the choice that he's going to go with. I don't mind his choice. I just don't like his stubbornness where he faces everybody else out. Yeah, he definitely only... shuts down Aragorn pretty hard. And guys, yeah. this is the part of the show where I argue with Ken. So <laughs> Everybody argues with that's, me. Hey, that's usually my job. What are you talking about? Like, Why are you asking job? for more backstory on Helm's Deep? Come on! <laughs> the great thing about this movie is it doesn't need the backstory because, you know, the backstory kind of follows... So much. Because oh. the backstory follows the whole movie. I mean, we get the backstory kind of alongside the actual story the whole way through. And we're kind of reminded of the past, which is kind of a nice way of having the backstory. It kind of goes with the regular story instead of having to like set everything up. It's just nicely done. I like how the backstory is infused with the regular story of the movie. Yeah. It's a a really well adapted screenplay. They did such a good job of pulling from so much source material in these books, like at like the last hundred pages of the books are just appendices of things. And you're like, oh, what's that? Oh, it's a guy that turns into a bear. Oh, OK, well, that's interesting. What's that? Oh, that's the Lord of the Eagles. Oh, OK, well, that's that's interesting. You know, and you can go through that if, if you are so desiring, you know. You have the, the leader of, well, he's not the leader of the elves. Maybe he's the general of the elves that show up. There's three kings of elves. One of them is Elrond, and, and the other mm-hmm. one is uh, Celeborn and um, uh, Galadriel. You know, you've got your three elven kings there. Those those came from Elrond. Okay, I think who, I think that's Halmir. Why does he and Aragorn embrace the way they do? Is there something in the extended cut or in the book that says that they have a deeper relationship guy. here? Aragorn grew up in Rivendell. So he knows them, he speaks Elvish and all that, so that's the whole thing in there. As far as I thought, that was the same guy from Lothlorien who said that dwarf breathes so heavy I right. could shoot him in the dark. Right. So, so they just came from where he was, so they're happy yeah. that he made it alive. He shows up with an army, and okay. they're out. They're outnumbered 10,000 to 300. I'd be happy as shit to see him too. I'd be throwing him a goddamn parade. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, gee, many Christmas. I'd hug him, too. Essentially, we're all going to die anyway. We stand a half a chance now. Mm-hmm. That... Well, the, the hug was kind of almost relational. I felt like they, they had a friendship, and I wasn't aware of this friendship. That's what I got when I saw the hug. I didn't think about, oh, you, you came with 300 men? Thank you. It wasn't that kind of hug. It was, like, appreciative. Yeah, there's that... He comes with more than 300. 
Yeah, and, and he grew up with elves, so he's definitely yeah. an elf. He, I, I mean, mean, they know each how other. Many, how many elves did he come with? Oh, wow. know, that's, that's, it's more than, yeah, a thousand. Yeah. thousand? At least. Oh, they should have done better then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right we can talk about criticism. Should have brought more elves. Okay. <laughs> yeah. More I mean, elves. Well... The Ensign Isengard. And what a jarring scene it is to see that. And that's, you know, one of the aforementioned in the title, uh, Two Towers, is the Tower of uh, Orthentac of um, Isengard there. And I mean, when you see what it looked like when Gandalf was there in the first, to what it looks like now, it's devastation. You know, ruin. And, and it just literally, it jarred these things to where they had no choice but, you know, to act. And it's so funny. You know, it's like you wouldn't have thought that, but it's like, oh, they had no restraint after that. Isengard has been corrupted completely, has been overtaken by Sauron. Even Gandalf told Saruman he doesn't have partners. He's going to overtake you, and he's going to make you subservient, which essentially is what Sauron does. I'm happy they kept the battle there short with Tree Baird and the other trees because the, the trees CGI. Are badass. They're badass, but the CGI doesn't really hold up very strongly. That's the part of this movie that I, I do agree with. It's the CGI on those that if they were to find a way to remaster this and, and like clean that up, I would love that. Just so it doesn't look so fakey. It's the only piece that takes me out of it. And I, I do wonder about how that holds up in 4K. In, in mine, in 1080, it was like, oh, yeah, this looks a little rough. I mean, it doesn't take me out of the movie, but if I had like a technical criticism for it, I'd say that's the part that looks very fakey. I know I have the 4K version, and it doesn't look terrible. It doesn't look bad. Okay. Yeah, it's it, it it got cleaned up. I mean, it's not the best in the movie by by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And it it really doesn't take me out of it. I mean, it's it, I mean it's a stretch that the trees are you know they're under, indestructible essentially. Hey, oh, that's, it, oh, that's it, the it's, other it's, trees. It's a fantasy story, so you know you have to provide a little bit of grace to some things that don't really always make sense. Would, would you sure. like this better if they played the Rush song? Uh, you know, there is no. unrest in the forest. No, <laughs> no, that wouldn't work very well. No, so it makes you question Absolutely though why the, why the trees <laughs> didn't fight back to begin with when they were being taken down. If these were like friends of Treebeard. Why couldn't they, right there, like, hey, we're going to chop these trees down and yank them from the roots. Why didn't they come alive then and, and try to stop them? And now you have your analogy to, you know, the European climate exactly. of World War II. You hit the nail right on the head. Exactly. I if everybody saw off. something going on, how come no one did anything? And then they get there and they're like, it's too late, you know? Yeah. It's okay, Ken. A, a broke clock is right twice a day. He stumbled across I'm it. I'm the one so that it, brought it up. Yeah. You know? I didn't hear you bring it up. I mean, that's why they had that little meeting uh, between the trees to discuss what they're going to do, and they decided to do nothing, and like Justin just said, it's... Well, that's just kind yeah. of like what happened with Neville Chamberlain when they met and decided to appease Hitler. Tolkien's taking from real life. And now you can see really who plays at. the Germans in, in this theater. Yeah, you know? which is kind of that bullshit, whatever. Fun fact of this uh, in this movie, Christopher Lee actually met Tolkien. So yeah, he was the only, only one in the movie that knew him. Christopher Lee is the most amazing human being who has ever lived. He is the Dos Equis most interesting man who has ever lived. 
Do you have his metal album? Yes. <laughs> I've I've listened to it. Yes. It's awesome. Words cannot even begin to describe how awesome he is. Yeah, I only oh. knew him as his role as uh, Willy Wonka's father in the... Uh, I'm just kidding. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's a terrible thing to say. I think we should go to the third part before uh, Eric falls asleep on us. The number of thou shalt pullith is three. Two thou shalt only... Oh, oh wait, sorry. Wrong. Wrong fantasy. Okay. Right. Uh, part no, three, man, Eric read it in an accent. You should. <laughs> the number of thou shalt pullith is three. Five is outright wrong. Yes, <laughs> Did you guys do that one yet? Monty Python? Not yet. Yeah. Back to business here. Aragorn arrives at Helm's Deep, warning Théoden of Sar- Saruman's army approaching. Théoden prepares battle despite being vastly outnumbered. A company of Lothlorien elves arrive to aid the people of Rohan, shortly before Saruman's army attacks the fortress. The Urukai breach the outer wall with explosives, and during the ensuing charge, kill the elves' commander, Haldir. The defenders retreat to the keep, where Aragorn convinces Theoden to meet the Urukai in one last charge. At dawn, as the defenders are overwhelmed, Gandalf and Aramir arrive with the Rohirrim, turning the tide of the battle, and the surviving Urukai flee into Fangorn Forest and are killed by the trees. Gandalf warns that Sauron will retaliate. Gollum leads Frodo and Sam through the Dead Marshes to the Black Gate, but recommends they enter Mordor by another route. Frodo and Sam are captured by the rangers of Ithlin, led by Faramir, younger brother of Boromir. Frodo helps Faramir catch Gollum to save him from being killed by the rangers. Learning of the One Ring, Faramir takes his captives to Gondor to bring the ring to his father, Denethor. Passing through the besieged city of Osgiliath, Frodo tries to explain to Faramir the true nature of the ring, and Sam explains that Boromir was driven mad by its power. Nazgul nearly captures Frodo, who falls under the ring's power, but Sam saves him and reminds his disheartened Frodo that they are fighting and there is still good left in Middle-earth. Impressed by Frodo's resolve, Faramir releases them. Feeling betrayed, Gollum decides that he will reclaim the ring by leading Frodo to her upon arriving in Sirith Ungol. So, and that's, and that's the end of the movie. I think it's interesting. We, we haven't really talked much about Frodo and Sam throughout this whole movie. We talked about Gollum for a while, and then we talked about the other characters, but Sam and Frodo, we've kind of strayed away from them, even though they're the other half of this movie. This isn't their movie. They mm-hmm. have their moments. They're really just setting other people up in this, and they're, they're supporting characters. Gollum and Gandalf and Aragorn are your real stars here. You know, because it's more about their journey at this point. I love the fact they're in the dead marshes. Oh, the so dead in, in the marshes. And, and the, you're just waiting for their eyes to open up. Really creepy and, and cool at the same time. You know, it's one of those things that every time I watch it, I enjoy it. Yeah, it's, the, it's nuts. Is that where the original battle took place at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring? Very possibly it could be because that's that's where you've got like all the elves and men and, and mm-hmm. orcs and all that are in there. So very possibly. Their journey is not the the main focus of of this movie. It's everything in this movie sets up to the the climax, with which is the battle. But as far as Frodo and Sam go, I like the fact that they meet uh, Faramir, that they give him his due here. He's the the least of the two sons. Yeah, but he's the one that shows that he has the resolve to be able to hold off and not ignore the ring, but let go of the ring and allow Frodo to go on. And he sees the importance of what Frodo's doing. Because there for a while, you don't really know exactly 
if he understands. And when he finally does, it, it's an amazing thing because he's one of the only men. I guess you could consider Aragorn is considered a man, but he understands the gravity of the situation. And he knows what will happen if he gives the ring over to his father. It's going to corrupt him just like it corrupted Baromir. Yeah, no, that whole sequence of them is is really, really good. And it adds a lot to the movie. And, of course, there's some really cool aspects to the, the battle that they're they're fighting as well. You have the, the undead king. Now they fly. <laughs> yeah. I kind of disagree with you. I'm not a big fan of this character. Just, okay, first of all, I don't know why he wants to kill Gollum. He says because he entered a restricted area, but then he gives Frodo a chance to save him. So I don't understand that. And he looks like he really is going to get that ring and wants to take it back to his father. Now, I know there's a difference between the extended version and the theatrical version. If I were to go with the extended version, maybe I like his character a little bit more. But with the, the original version, I, he's kind of a prick up until when Frodo's about ready to kill Sam. And Sam basically shares his heart with Frodo and, sa- you know, and saves Frodo from doing this, that he sees that and then changes his mind. Because up to then, I, he, I think he's going to take that ring and take it all the way to his father. Well, I just wanted to point out that the similarity between this and another uh, literary work and uh, show that we got to see. Think about Game of Thrones and think about right. House Stark, where you've got Rob Stark and Jon Snow. Faramir is very much Jon Snow in, in this. Right. Obviously, Aragorn, you could you could say that too. But it's like the whole thing, the lesser of the sons, the one who's going to pay attention, the one who learns. And you actually see character growth here because he's sitting back and paying attention and learning where his brother did not. You know, so that's that's the whole thing. And, and honestly, I love Faramir's character. He's one of my favorites in the book. He's just such an interesting character too because as good as he is, He's never going to live up to what Boromir, Sean Bean's character, was. It's just not going to happen in his father's eyes. He's the lesser of two sons, as uh, Ted was saying. It's one of those things, and you get to see him. It's like, oh, he can do the one thing that his brother couldn't do. He let the ring go. And why they want to kill Gollum? Gollum's an evil creature that's been around for like four to seven hundred years, depending on on how long. You know, so it's like sitting there and smacking that fish. I mean, it's actually fun watching him do that. Yeah, <laughs> Smacks yeah. it against the rock a number of times. Takes a bite of it with his, his uh, terracotta teeth. I mean, you yeah. feel bad for him. I mean, yeah. one thing this movie does a really good job of Gollum is having sympathy for him. I think mm-hmm. they do a great job of mixing the two personalities and you know, knowing that you can't trust him, but at the same time, having that sympathy for him. As a moviegoer, you're in Frodo shoes. That's a really well done job by by Jackson to to make that happen. Yeah, and you you get a lot of influence in Frodo from Bilbo and like the innocence that he has. I, granted, you wouldn't know that if you didn't read the book, or you wouldn't know that if you didn't see The Hobbit and all that. But it's like you can see those sort of things because Gandalf talks about in Fellowship of the Ring. It was the pity that he had for Gollum that the ring didn't overtake him. And, and all of those sort of things, and the innocence that these characters have. And you really do see that from Elijah Wood, even though he's not front and center with his performance, but he's doing a good job of kind of making you think this ring is getting deeper and deeper hooks into him every moment. He's calling the Nazgul, and, and you know, he's he's going crazy, and he's also, like, showing remorse and, and pity towards Gollum and saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out here. 
you know, because he understands what the ring did to him. And he's got nothing but pity for him because he's like, man, I hope that's not me. And and I think that's where, you know, Sam has that struggle with understanding on why Frodo keeps Gollum around, right? He's jealous, Sam, too. I mean, to a certain extent, jealous. yeah. Yeah. They're both kind of jealous. I mean, Gollum actually has uh, bonded with Frodo. He trusts his master. And if he doesn't sell him out to the rangers here, who knows what might happen? I mean, eventually I think he still turns against them. But it might take longer, or maybe it never does happen. We kind of end the movie with it happening, so. You know, Frodo lied. He tricked him, saying everything was going to be okay, and then he got captured. I, um, more I don't more. know what, during World War II, besides morphine, would have been the addictive drug of the time. But mm-hmm. Gollum is in pretty much, like, like uh, too deep? modern contemporary um, literature. I mean, he's like, he's the addict. He's a textbook addict when it comes to this stuff. He's doing what he can to get his fix. His fix is being as close to that ring as possible with the hope that one day he can take it and, and own it again. The answer to your question is methamphetamine. Okay. You have the addicts who want to get better. I think he wants to be better. I think he wants to be done with this ring as well. It's just also an addict behavior. Right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So I think you guys, you know, hit the nail on the head on that. You know, you go to rehab, you try to do the right things, you try to say the right things. And at the end of the day, though, a lot of them just go back to being an addict. You do have an occasion where people do break through and, and break free from that addiction. And that's why I'm saying I'm wondering if Frodo doesn't sell him out to the Rangers, can he break away? There's no way he would continue to hunt for that ring. That's his main, you know, motive in life is to get that ring back at all costs. What it comes down to, Frodo is also enabling him by dangling that ring over him all the time that he has it and that he's his master. So it's like it's only a matter of time until he's betrayed. And Frodo's trusting with this and doesn't realize that he's actually enabling an addict. There's kind of like a deep psychology to this piece, too. I want to touch on uh, Helm's Deep, and I I want to know, okay, so they bring the explosives, because that's the weak point of the... um, Rock? (laughs) Rock? (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't you know, as your king or even, you know, a strategist, that you have a weak point, and that's what it is, and you don't do anything to fortify that area? They hadn't seen anything like that, because um, they were going up against a wizard. And the wizard, you know, with alchemy, you know, takes whatever he does to to make the gunpowder. They they had no idea. So they didn't have, like, explosives at at a particular time in any kind of way. Okay. That makes sense. That's my bugaboo. Every impenetrable fortress, I don't know if this is considered the first time that, you know, anything like that, but it has to have a Achilles heel. And, of course, it's it's a storm drain. I guess my biggest bone of contention is Legolas has shown himself to be super accurate with a bow and arrow. And the time that he needs to stop somebody, he's not accurate. It completely is different from his character overall. I guess if it wasn't Legolas that was the one shooting at the guy running with the torch, I think I'd probably have a little bit better feeling towards it it just seems a little off kilter the battle scenes are amazing 
And, you know, Peter Jackson had said that he wanted to put the most epic battle sequence in movie history on, on screen. And in many cases, he did. It still stands up to this day. It's, it's, it's amazing. There the lighting are some, especially that, for me is just like, wow, this yeah. is so well lit. Like just the cinematography of it and, and watching it in light in widescreen and all that and the dark. And yeah. I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. Yeah, we talked about a couple times Game of Thrones. The last couple of episodes could have taken a real page out of their playbook here. Um, yeah, they should have. <laughs> but the Arurakai, I think they sell them a little bit down the river a little bit. In the first movie, they're considered badasses. And here, there's 10,000 of them. They kind of turn into pawns instead of badasses. I mean, because they just get wholesalely killed off. Ultimately, when Gandalf shows up with the riders, they're still outnumbering everybody by a whole lot. And they end up turn-tailing and running into the forest. It, It kind of sells them a little bit short. I understand why they do it, because, of course, good has to triumph over evil. Your Roman military strategy, too, right? True. Cavalry that comes in and they flank them, so they take them off guard and send them panicking off. So that's that's kind of like one of the the classic maneuvers. Second of which, you know, is, uh, you know, never engage with a Sicilian when death. Right. (laughs) And never never have a a land war in, in Asia. Yeah, but and that's. Um, I mean, that's essentially what the orcs were doing. You know. Yeah, and the other question that I have is, how did Gimli and Legolas only come up with that they only killed forty-two and forty-three, respectively? They are wholesaling killing a bunch <laughs> of these, a bunch of these Arurakai, and they can only come up with forty-two and forty-three. That's I, I'm wondering too, if but. that's a nod to uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the, uh, you know, universe. What's the answer to the the Secret of Life Forty Two? All right. Well, I know I haven't said too much about this, but uh, we'll we'll talk about our final reviews. I'm going to kick it off because I'm the one that's probably got the most negative review of the movie. I'll keep hey, it guys, short. Eric's here. I know, right? I'll keep <laughs> it short and sweet. It's got a great battle scene. I'll give it that. The rest of the movie is just people walking around endlessly. Bored the hell out of me. It's three hours of my life. I'll never get back. If there is a God, I will never watch this movie again. I'll give it a C for an average just based on the battle scene. Ken, what do you got? I like this more than the previous movie. I think the battle scene is well done. He actually shot 20 hours of film for this battle scene. He had a lot to work with. I think it's a really well-paced movie. I, I disagree with you on the the walking. I think you know they're still walking here. Don't get me wrong. Oh my god, the whole movie is walking and trees <laughs> walking. Right, it's probably I because think, I noticed it in the first movie so much. Now that's the only thing I'm. That's walk- the only thing you're looking watching. for. Now is how much do they walk? And here? oh my good, <laughs> if it's not if it's not a helicopter shot of them climbing mountains and this that and the other, I'm like, oh my god, just stop walking. But I think the difference between this movie and the last movie is character development. I think there's more characters that are being developed here. And I think I appreciate, especially Gollum, you know, the split personality. Whenever he's on the screen, we just want to see who we're going to get. I really like what Peter Jackson did here. Some of the CGI is a little dated, but some of it holds up better than some of the CGI that we get today. So on that note, I'm going to give it a B+. I'll go next. Out of the three movies, this is my favorite movie. 
like Ken said, that there's a, there's a lot of character development here. I really like the performances from Andy Serkis and, of course, from Ian McKellen. The movie is well-paced. I, I Now, I did watch the extended director's cut, so my version was a little bit closer to four hours. There are times it feels a little bit long. The, it keeps my interest a lot more than the other two movies of the three, so I'm going to give it a B-plus as well. Nice. All right, Justin. Take us home. I like that uh, what Ken was saying. I really agree with that, that it is, it is kind of a clear progression. And this is everything that you want in a sequel. You build upon the world that was created in the first one. And I think it's one of those rare times where you look at it, and you're like, wow, the sequel's superior to the original. I think this movie's an A. It's not my favorite of them. Like, that will be the next one. You know, spoiler, but you know I like them anyway. So, <laughs> but um, there, there's a lot of good stuff here. And, and that battle scene is just so good. Like, you could just watch that on YouTube over and over. Eric, would you watch the battle scene over? Like, out of everything? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, it was okay. I mean, yeah, there's there's no way they're going to beat tens of thousands of little mutants it's not gonna happen. It's a so fantasy. it's it's more of a, a a suspension of disbelief issue than than uh, really yeah, like execution. you know I, this I'll, I'm gonna be honest with you guys and you guys know this fantasy world is not my realm. Not your so yep. not at all. So really, I'm just like oh, whatever. You know, just die already. Kill them all. Wipe them out. <laughs> Kill the women, the children in the cave. I don't care. Just end it. <laughs> wow. No, that's not Damn. what happens. They put that yeah. little kid in the, in the this yes. outfit. Re- Eric's like, he's going to die. Yeah. I, yes, <laughs> I, I love how they're sending like nine-year-olds out with swords to fight these guys. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good plan. All this right. review just got dark. Yeah. yeah. Got yeah. Pretty dark. I think this is the top three battle scene of all movies I've ever seen. Wow, that's that's really high praise. I mean, I I'm really partial to the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, you know, which is uh, coming up in the next one, which is what they base the Battle of Evermore on, Led Zeppelin. Oh, so there you know, we go, Zeppelin reference. That's kind All of right, like, I'm looking forward to yeah, that then. So that cool. one's kind of my favorite, but I mean, it's it's great, and it's got the start of some great characters. Look for uh, you know a lot more out of Faramir and a lot more out of Eowyn in the next movie. I don't so even know who you're talking about, but okay, great <laughs> progression <laughs> of. People that are, I don't know. <laughs> but there'll be some I, walking there. Eric. I'm we'll walk, sure there's. Oh, you want to make sure there's going to be yeah. some walking there for you. There's so. going to be a lot of walking. Any trees walking in this one and the next one? I'm. I don't oh, remember. Yeah, yeah it's there. bushes. Beautiful. It's bushes. It's this bushes. Time. Yeah. Shrubbery. <laughs> yes. Yes. Shrubbery. Yes. We need a Monty Python uh, reference for this. All right. Well. We all know we're going, uh, the third one in the trilogy coming up will be the, uh, what is that, Return of the King? Yeah? Yes. Return of the King, which I guess apparently Eric, is... there's only one return, and I it's know. of the Jedi. Yeah, I, <laughs> amen to that. All right, I don't even know where I'm going with this one now. All right, so, uh, Ted, tell us where they can find us on the World Wide Web. God help us. Well, we can be found on X slash Twitter. For now, hooked on, hooked on underscore movies. Yeah, as long as Elon doesn't destroy the world, come and interact with us there. And you know, whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, we should be found on all of them. And if you can, give us a five star rating um, and leave us a review because that helps us get noticed. And hopefully, if we get enough reviews, we'll be able to become Rotten Tomato certified someday. 
And Ken, you are doing a phenomenal job posting some great articles there on Facebook. I've really enjoyed them. And you can also join our Facebook group. It's Hooked on Movies. Just request to be part of the group. We'll approve you because we don't really have any standards. And then you can join the discussion. <laughs> and we'll waive yeah, the membership fee this one time. That's right. Putting robe is uh, extra. Yes, from, exactly. Uh, Black Klansman. Black Klansman, yes. yeah. Yes, not included in your membership. All right. Well, obviously I'm not the person you really want for this review, but it is fun listening to these three gentlemen talk about the movie. Sometimes a little bit more fun than watching the movie itself. But we will see how the third movie, The Return of the King. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And uh, good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. See you at the movies. See you next time on Hooked on Movies. Bye.